Just by way of background, you should realize that question number nine follows question number eight. Graduate school, it pay, it's paying off. But the reason why that's significant is the, um, the question number eight says, but are we so corrupted that we are totally unable to do any good and incline toward all evil? That is what we confessed, talked about last week is, the radical corruption of our human nature so that apart from God's grace and causing us to be born again, we are radically corrupt and incapable of pleasing God. Question number nine. But doesn't God do man an injustice by requiring in his law what man is unable to do? No. God created man with the ability to keep the law Man, however, at the instigation of the devil, in willful disobedience, robbed himself and all his descendants of these gifts. Will God permit such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? Certainly not. He is terribly angry with the sin we are born with, as well as our actual sins. God will punish them by a just judgment, both now and in eternity, having declared... Cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the things written in the book of the law. But isn't God also merciful? God is certainly merciful, but he is also just. His justice demands that sin committed against his supreme majesty be punished with the supreme penalty, eternal punishment of body and soul. So, Lord's Day number four introduces us to some of the most common objections against the Reformed doctrine of soteriology. But I trust what you're going to see here is, is that's only because the Reformed doctrine of soteriology, that is the doctrine of salvation, is thoroughly biblical at each and every one of these points. But, but these are areas where people naturally object. Um, I think the clearest course for us to take this morning will be simply to take these three questions from Lord's Day number four in order uh, while expanding quite a bit upon the answers. Uh, but before we do that, I want to remind you once again that this actually flows naturally out of Lord's Day number three. That is question number eight. Are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and incline toward all evil? And the Catechism gives this clear and biblical answer. Yes, unless we are born again by the Spirit of God. So according to the Catechism and according to Scripture, we are totally unable to do any good and incline towards all evil until we are born again. Now to be clear, unbelievers do things that we call civic good. I mean, you have unbelieving neighbors who are nice to you. Who, you know, who help old ladies across the street. Who who uh, will bring you food when you're um, in the hospital or something like that. Right? We're not saying that unbelievers only do evil all the time, but those are civic goods. In order to do something that is considered good before God, it must also be done out of the right motives. That is, it must be done in accordance with God's will, what he's told us is right and wrong, what we ought to be doing. It must be done with a, uh, a heart that is loving God, right? you're doing these out of that motive. And it must be done in faith. And unbelievers, by definition, don't have that faith. Even when they do civic goods, they're doing it because of some wrong or selfish motive. And therefore, 
before God acts and gives us new life in Jesus Christ by causing us to be born again, all we ever do is sin. Just realize that. When you do those things that we consider to be nice and good and blessings to your neighbors, if you do those apart from faith in Jesus Christ, if you do those apart from loving God and loving your neighbor, but you're doing it because I want to I look good, that very act of what we would call civic good, in it you are sinning. By nature, after the fall, no human being born through ordinary generation ever does good of their own free will. Listen to how strongly and comprehensively Paul puts this in Romans chapter 3. Paul writes, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The radical corruption of human nature through sin is the plain teaching of God's word. This leads us to our first question. But doesn't God do man an injustice by requiring in his law what man is unable to do? Uh, Please make sure you feel the weight of this objection. It's easy if you've been a Bible-believing Christian for a long time and you know this is the correct answer to kind of dismiss that objection that God is doing an injustice. And in some ways that's right. You know, um, I almost said may genita. Um, far be it from us. Nathan's laughing. Uh, that's, that's, that's the strongest way you can say in Greek. You know, God forbid, may it never be, um, that we would imagine that God would do an injustice. And yet we ought to feel this weight of this argument so we can, we can answer it in our own minds and perhaps with our friends and neighbors. G.I. Williams suggests this sort of analogy. Suppose, for instance that God punished a fish for not walking, or a cow for not flying. Is it not self-evident that this would be unjust? It surely is not fair or just to punish a creature for not doing what it was never given the ability to do. So why can't we say the same thing about man, since he is not able to keep God's commandments perfectly? That is... If we are totally unable to do any good and inclined toward all evil, isn't it wrong for the Lord to punish us for what we are not able to do? And I'm going to throw that to you. How do you answer that? Sarah. Well, So Sarah's making a really important distinction. First of all, in terms of human knowledge, everybody knows God. 
God does not judge us for what we could not possibly know, what we sometimes call in theology invincible ignorance. Um, Simple illustration, you know, in the United States, um, you stop on red, you go on green. So if you were to come to some small town in Georgia and get a ticket for going through the green light, and the police officer was to say, well, you know, in this town we give tickets for going through green lights because you're supposed to stop on green, drive on red, that would be an injustice, right? That would be totally unfair because you would have no way of knowing that. However, if you were to go into court and tell the judge, I didn't know I was supposed to stop on red, the judge would say, well, that sort of supposed ignorance is uh, no excuse at all because you have every means of knowing that you're supposed to stop on red. It's the law, right? And also, I don't believe you because that's ridiculous. Now, God does not punish people for things they don't know. And so Sarah's point, of course, is, is everybody does know God. And God's going to judge them for the things they know they should have done, right, through natural revelation, not for things that they don't know. However, I'm going to come back here, Sarah, the question is a little bit different than that. It's not simply they don't know. It's you come to them and you say, well, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what the catechism and what the Bible is saying is left to yourself, you cannot do that. You cannot do that. And so is God unjust for punishing you when in fact you can't love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength in your fallen human nature? So how do you answer that objection? Is that unjust for God to do that? Yes, Ben. Ben. 